The way you can future-proof your children is by not denying them a creative education because that is what we cannot automate and that will enable them to become systems thinkers, designers of their future world. We view everything in these kind of individual pillars, so we separate subjects or we separate sectors without any communication between them. So what I think the future looks like, children specifically are going to need to have an ability to connect things, pieces where answers and solutions may lie in other disciplines. In this episode, we ask if Changemaker is the top job of the future. Preparing our kids for the adult world is what we do as parents, and work is one of the key areas of this world. In the age of rapid economic, political and social change, are there skills that we can nurture in our kids that will create the difference between staying ahead of the curve to create change and being drowned by waves of it and unprecedented events? How do we raise passionate kids who are motivated to be explorers and change makers who stay open-minded and hungry to create a better world. Joining me today are two very special guests, Ksenia Ajube, an architect and researcher who specializes on the areas of urbanism and culture. Ksenia is starting her Fulbright Visiting Scholar Fellowship at Pratt Institute in New York City this September to explore new natural resources and emerging labor economies. She teaches at London School of Architecture, amongst others, and is a mom to a four-year-old boy. Hello, Ksenia. Hello. Fantastic to be here. And Florence Koli-Raja. Florence is the founder of Ethical Era platform, campaigning for sustainability and the creator of the 2030 Positive Planet Agenda. Prior to this, she worked with the UK and European parliaments and local governments for a decade, worked in investment banking before that, and was a ballet dancer for Ballet Black. Florence is a mom to a boy and a girl. Hello, Florence. Hello, thank you for having me. Flo, so 80% of young people in 2030 will be doing jobs that haven't been invented yet. That's like a quote um, that's uh, flying around out there. How does that make you feel? Um, so that quote is very accurate. I've seen the reports in UK Parliament around that. And um, additionally, my, my brother-in-law, he is within the AI space. Um, as well, so I have a lot of exposure um, connecting um, with his work, and that is very accurate. And the, the saddest part about this is that when we've had a lot of discourse and um, I think social unrest in, in the last you know, couple of years with Brexit, specifically in the U UK, many people have attributed um, the loss of jobs to you know people um, entering the country you know, and, and, and foreigners or you know, whatever way that people perceive um, you know the exchange of, of labor and and culture and, and people in this world um, but uh, actually most of those jobs and have been lost due to actually progression within um, the fourth industrial revolutions and and jobs have been automated but the people who are about to be blindsided are the middle class. So we are sitting very comfortably and you know, I'm, I'm you know, like I say, sort of average middle class and I don't like to differentiate people by the class system, but that's sadly just how I think mm -hmm. you know, we structure society. So I'm using labels uh, allocated to us, not ones that I subscribe to, but um, the, the middle class and their jobs are now on the table for the taking and from the perspective that many of these jobs, yes, um, can be um, uh, executed by AI be it you know 
in the field of, of law where you know AI can read a contract in the space of seconds whereas it would take hours for a human being with greater accuracy uh, for my, my brother-in-law specifically works within the medical field where I'm seeing you know amazing things so you know AI is actually relatively neutral it's just how we deploy it it is going to change the nature of what is perceived as a professional or a job and you know what mm -hmm. people can can do to to earn money and I'm just seeing that people are very blind to this and uh, how does this make me feel um, it makes me feel nervous because even when I see this coming I don't even know what action to take even though I'm mm. quite versed in AI in, in politics and I've worked in the finance sector I'm also now in, in sustainability as I feel so I'm quite versed more versed perhaps than the, the average person on on the future and this fourth industrial revolution that's coming at us. Uh, thank you Flo. Um, Xenia in this apocalyptic reality where we we don't know what's coming um, what is your view from a point of view of designer and architect? Well, I suppose I come from the more optimistic and perhaps utopian camp in looking at all of this. This question is very prevalent in everything that I do and in everything that I think because I'm constantly thinking about young people, young designers and what are the relevant, uh, what is the relevant knowledge and experience that we should be giving them. Uh, which will enable them to form uh, a future that is worthy of them um, and cities that are worthy of them. And there's quite a strong school of thought that there will remain a huge uh, need and interest in the human race for um, artistic practice and for creative practice. And the art as labour idea is basically about that, is... Um, it's both a question and answer at the same time. It's uh, in a post-work future, in an automated future, will we still want to do work? Well, and what kind of work will we want to do? And what will our relationship with labour and with um, physical labour become? And will there remain an interest in uh, creative, uh, um, creative, real uh, work that, that creates a product, I mean, not just a virtual product, but a physical product. Um, because in the research mm -hmm. that I've done, uh, it demonstrates that actually people, uh, people gain an enormous enjoyment and quality of life from creating things in the real world, such as, you know, it can be varied from growing your own strawberries to um, building out of timber, uh, creating large-scale sculptures, uh, which a lot of the research we've done in, in integration of young people that mm -hmm. we've done is around, but also the creation of uh, and design of systems, big systems, um, geoengineering, uh, planetary design, etc., etc. So yeah, so the idea is that we, we will hopefully have more time, and the question is how uh, will we spend that time and what role will craft, artistic practice and physical labour play in that for the improvement of quality of life for people? Hmm. It's interesting, um, everything that you were saying is actually the way kids experience the world. It's very applied and it's based on something that they make and create. Flo, what do you think about how kids are developing now? I don't think uh, schools actually teach, if anything, you you learn and then you're, you're going to have to unlearn many of the things that are uh, taught to you in the future. It, schools remove imagination, empathy, they create competition. We were the last generation who benefited from that 
traditional education of you know, your Latin and geography and history, etc. I think it's no longer relevant in the same way. And if those subjects are to survive, they also need to adapt to how they relate to a, a tech-focused future and a, a planetary and environmental-focused future too. So if you were studying, um, you know, let's say, fashion uh, or design, etc., it has to have at its core the starting point of you know, what is good for the environment and then you work your way out as to what you will teach as to, you know, the material science and the you know, ethics of design, etc. Whereas we're sort of, you know, we work backwards. We think we can do whatever we we want and we, you know, have, we do have imagination. We, we create phenomenal physical things and ideologies, etc. without any, uh, there's never ever a scope of actually uh, what it does to people, to society or to the planet around us. And that mm -hmm. I find is really strange. So, you know, legally you still have to, you know, send your children to school and yes, you can homeschool, but it's not something that I'm interested in because I also believe that I, you know, I want to pursue certain things that I can give to the world. So I don't want to be homeschooling my, my children and I think they need to have their social skills to be out in the world as it is, as the reality is. But um, I think uh, the the whole system is built wrong and, uh, you know, I, can't, I don't know when we last updated curriculums. This is a system we created 100 years ago before that. How is that relevant to to the world of today and knowing um, the the sort of crisis point that we're at in this world with this pandemic and with uh, the environmental uh, crisis? I, I like the thought. Our education, in a way, is outdated because um, we teach kind of concepts that don't have anything to do with reality. You know, we really have to start from the end goal, as in you know, how, how how can we be better humans and then teach from there in a way. So that was very interesting. Um, and I think Xenia also mentioned it, how she's trying to apply it in her design um, teaching. Uh, I'm really um, challenged and fascinated by everything that uh, Flo has said, which I completely um, second and resonates with me very strongly. I personally, as a result of all this practice and thinking, which has um, taken me on a roller coaster adventure, have reevaluated how I want to educate my child. I, I try not to think too much. I try to kind of follow my instincts in life. And um, what's happened recently is we've uh, decided to join um, my mother in her house. She has a house in Italy, in Liguria. And uh, after being cooped up in a London flat during lockdown, uh, we had the opportunity to come here, which is fantastic. And I just thought to myself, isn't this what you always uh, kind of proposed as a uh, solution to education for a child to be integrated into this incredible natural environment uh, where um, he's kind of challenged to deal with... Uh, the fascinating you know, wonders of it uh, on a daily basis and mm. I actually am trying to realise this project of kind of setting up a, a programme for him um, to start in September instead of school which would be a combination of a forest school, a beach school to get maybe a group of young kids together 
um, and to yeah to just organize one's own education I mean this this might sound really unrealistic to people but I've seen it done before <laughs> by very close friends so you know I'm able able to fulfill my dream in the way that I want to educate my child and it would I think it would be wrong not to do that mm-hmm. so what should actually happen is yes you should keep some of the academic subjects but you should give children the opportunity to expand uh, their experience of, uh, of, of the world of the planet and to learn about ecology about sciences uh, in real world uh, surroundings I believe but I just wanted to mention one last thing which is this, this kind of gradation so yes obviously you can't just uh, educate children in a forest by the way uh, William Morris has a very beautiful explanation of this in his uh, book News From Nowhere at uh, one point you need middle school and you need um, your so- socialisation is of course very important and there's this fantastic quote by Antonus Mokkus uh, who was the mayor of Bogota, I think around the uh, noughties, in the noughties. And he was uh, ex-dean of a university, and he said, the city is a university. Mm-hmm. And if the city is not a university, then I don't know what is, you know. Um, so, yeah, the environment is our education. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so my interest would be how we can extract um, that learning from nature and and either bring it into a classroom or take children out of a classroom into nature in the same way, but in a collective way. So I have friends who have children at forest schools, other who, like people like myself, who will pick the traditional you know schools and then we do uh, a huge amount of work on the outside to counterbalance some of you know the things that are taught in the classrooms but how can we do that and how do we change it because even those buildings just you you are an architect and you'll know more uh, about this than, than I do but I uh, understand that you know uh, not enough light um, not the right space uh, and structure of just the building Uh, actually psychologically impacts how a child uh, learns, uh, behaves and everything and uh, so our our school buildings are not even built right relative to how much light they let in and how much proximity to nature it has so they they did experiments about this in the workplace where if a person's by a window and they have light they are, I mean the numbers were uh, crazy how much more productive they were. If that's the case all of our school buildings are wrong, (laughs) not just the education is wrong, like the space that the children are forced to be in all day long is wrong and so parents have a big job outside of of the education system to do if they're aware of these things to to give to that child but you know I'm still sort of you know in my mind how do we convince policy makers and governments to uh, at the most senior level and at you know, local government level to to reconsider how we approach um, education, the curriculum, but also how uh, even the buildings and the space and sitting in the classroom or even the sitting in the chair, the concept of sitting in the chair, uh, what that represents. Uh, is that really how children must learn? Um, but that's, that's difficult because we're very small in uh, a, a group of individuals who believe you know that a change must happen and see the world in such a radical way when i'm dealing with policymakers these are people who are you know very you know their education was even earlier than ours in, in in its conservatism and its views so it's very difficult to convince 
uh, people very set in their ways about the future that we should be building because they're looking to their their past and how they they were brought up and then in my life I have continued to learn so my education didn't stop with leaving university I continue to read philosophy and economics and books that are going to challenge me I'm learning all the time and I can and that's the tragic thing is that we're sitting in rooms with people trying to convince them to do differently for people who are static and have stopped learning themselves they stopped learning the moment they left that classroom in whatever capacity that was and they never learn again so how are you meant to convince people like that to think differently because they, they stopped learning decades ago well we just we just take their places surely that's the only way i mean we just have to um be in a way selfless because i think that people who are prepared to dedicate themselves and sacrifice themselves on the altar of politics and i take my hat off to you for that are um is essential that engagement in politics is just absolutely fundamental and in fact i'm a big fan of um this philosopher called hannah arendt who i'm sure you're aware of who says that the greatest uh, artistic practice is politics so i just wanted to uh, pick up on and the the suggestions that was talking about in terms of spatial design for education. Interestingly, the um, fellowship, the research fellowship that I'm about to embark on is in a thing called an inclusive ecologies incubator. So it looks a lot at inequality and uh, climate justice. And that's um, a lot of that is linked to climate change, but also um, rising inequality and rising urban inequality and the urban poor and how there are a lot of uh, low-income and vulnerable groups of people even in the richest cities and often um, children are impacted uh, most of all. And so we're also interested in uh, can the idea of bringing nature into the city in a more integrated way because we're going to have to figure out a way of using ecosystem services in our cities to uh, uh, to control climate change and to uh, regulate uh, climates because otherwise um, the environmental conditions are just going to get too extreme so the research I'm doing is going to be in New York City, which is uh, prone to flooding, which is uh, becomes very hot in the summer, very cold in the winter, etc. You get the idea. And we're looking a lot at how, um, you know, the idea of nature entering the city and the idea of like rural values, uh, such as um, urban agriculture, how that can be shared and integrated into education um, and into the lives of the most vulnerable or the people who have the least access to green spaces to um, to the natural environment how can we do that in actual cities that's one small lever and perhaps that lever is going to become greater but that is one lever for change is that governments have are going to have to do something about uh, people who are sinking deeper into poverty, increasing levels of inequality in cities, because that leads to not only um, economic unsustainability, but political unrest at the end of the day. That's the pressure. Those are the pressure points uh, for politicians when problems are so great that they need to seek out innovation in order to tackle them. What the pandemic showed, unprecedented change is possible. It's just a matter of 
people in power just need to see that new perspective. Change makers need to be louder. So on the subject of change maker and uh, Flo um, and Xenia, you both are. I wanted to ask you, I mean, clearly there's a lot of change that can uh, it has been shown that it can happen and needs to happen. But what does it take to bring about this change? How, how, how can you be the change maker? Um, so, I mean, the obvious point is it takes action. So, you know, to quote Hannah Arendt, uh, she said, you know, the most dangerous people in this world are uh, not quoting exactly, but they're not the, the people who are good or evil because we're, we're usually quite a small bunch. It's the people who sit on the fence. Those are your most dangerous people because those are the people that watch... Um, uh, tragedies unfold and they don't have sometimes the courage or you know, the conviction or the, the ability to, to, to participate. People sit on the sidelines, the majority of, of, of people in this world. Um, and I understand it's, it's, it's difficult. Uh, you know, people sometimes are in the kind of nuclear family um, bubble uh, and their focus is just children and their home and just surviving. I understand that. But then that, that, that burden falls very heavily on other people. And if we spread that out more equally, you wouldn't need people to be, you know, overly exceptional at pushing such mountains that, you know, are just too huge for one individual to tackle so the first thing is it requires active citizenship um i'm always not just on have been on the fringes of the, sort of the jobs that i've done where i've taken everything to the, the limit of how seriously i take the passion for change uh i took it to the max by being you know one of the first women of color ballerinas you know in 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 the uk challenging uh an institution for a long time i i felt i was sometimes alone in, in these things be it in friendship circles i was always up you know oh, it's florence on another adventure but no actually i think what i was it looked like an adventure and it looked like i was doing things of big magnitude but actually they wouldn't look so big if we were all participating in that same concept of that we are all part of one society and we're all meant to show up but i think people are very this concept of being private and having a private life uh, is taught to us that we should only care about ourselves and i threw that out out of the window very early on because i was at that bottom of that society so i know what it means when people forget about you and people only care about themselves and i said to myself if i ever rise in the ranks and i and i have had that uh privilege uh, well, not even privilege it's a right <laughs> i shouldn't use the word privilege i've had the right to do that and to progress in life um, and improve my 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 well-being and my my ability to do things in life uh, I said to myself that I will always show up uh, and speak up for the people who are forgotten so what would you say to your how old are your kids uh, my son is uh, nearly seven um, and my daughter's four what would you tell them now so with, with the benefit of hindsight that you have um, so I don't just tell them I show them so parents actually teach their kids I say be kind uh, uh, open your doors to people from other cultures, but then children will see their parents actually not have friends from diverse you know cultures, and they're living in bubbles where the so social cycle looks exactly like them. So sometimes parents don't even realise that they're reasserting certain things in their kids by just the nature of keeping in your bubble. Like uh, so, I actually do less talking and far more doing. And when I'm asked questions by my kids, you know, why are you at this meeting today, and why are you perhaps going to this march, mummy. You know, I, ex I explain to them that context without getting too deep mm -hmm. if it's something really disturbing that's going on in our, our world, but I don't shelter.
shelter my kids from information either because that's what you'll have many people say also behind scenes i don't want to tell my children about climate change i don't want to tell my children about blm i want to you know and i see people that i was in the park the other day and they we had graffiti of blm all over of the park when we actually went for respite and uh, when my son pointed at it and said what does blm mean because i haven't had i said people felt sad because someone mm -hmm. had died that's all that i said to him but i didn't discuss what blm meant with him but i said that means black lives matter what does that mean to you what do you understand from that and he gave his uh answer of what he thought that was when another parent walked five minutes behind me uh also of an ethnic minority background um but not from the the black community when the, their child pointed at it they said no it's it's nothing that should you know concern mm. you and that's you know if they were going to graffiti something they should put something pretty there so there there is your parent and that parent will probably behind the scenes say you know tell the child say please and thank you and step aside for people etc but actually in that moment i would argue that you should have actually opened up your child's mind a little bit to tell them the truth about something you could have taught them something in that moment i mean i 100 percent agree with that and it's something that i've thought about very deeply and have tried to embed in my life and my practice uh, leading by example, but also leading through practice. If people see somebody do something impactful, do something inspiring, it has so much more power than, than any um, talking. So I just wanted to say a couple of things about design, um, which are uh, taking hold, which are becoming very important. So um, in the uh, in the context in which we work with two uh, refugee crises in the uh, Global Free Unit, the uh, the project that I'm involved in, one is the European refugee crisis, and the other is. Um, the uh, South American refugee crisis, predominantly from Venezuela. And um, there, there are very uh, vulnerable and uh, underrepresented and people in, in very serious human need. And there's a problem of uh, political voice and, and problems that lead to uh, crime, for example, and a really good way of tackling that is indeed to elevate people's voices and to um, give them the opportunity to design, to co-design their world, to co-design their spaces, to co-design their educational network, to to. Mm -hmm. be more integrated in like designing those systems that are going to um, deliver uh, services such as healthcare and education, etc. And we focus on um, community engagement in the design and procurement and creation of, of the built environment. That's kind of a byproduct because the impact is actually just through... Um, making people feel um, like they're worth something, like they're, um, and, and giving them that, that power to create their, their future.
I love that idea of active, active citizenship and starting from young for our kids. I, can, I think it can make a difference. What are key skill sets that you think your kids need for the future? How do you nurture them, Flo? In the work that I'm doing now as a founder of Ethical Era, which is a sustainability collaborative platform, I, I view the future as that we need uh, to connect the dots. So we view everything as pillars that are separate to each other, be it subjects or sectors, and nobody's talking to each other. And that's where we've run into a lot of issues. Um, so what we need is actually to remove this layer of, of competition that we're taught um, and we need to become much more open source. And so we need inter-sector dialogue happening. Uh, we also need cross-sector dialogue happening. So if we pick a subject such as that I campaign extensively on, um, I campaign on, on lots of different elements of, of sustainability, but one is fashion, which people don't realise is very high up there. It's in the top five as to its damage to our uh, environment. If you're tackling something like sustainability, fashion you need to actually go all the way back to regenerative agriculture but someone who studies fashion will learn nothing about agriculture even though those textiles come are grown you know there are obviously other textiles that we we make but those are you know come from the ground be it the cotton uh, uh silk whatever you know uh, that we're using. So you're actually receiving only a very small piece of information and of a puzzle in the way that you're educated and then the work that you're attempting to do when you then go into that sector. So, and then to tackle that issue uh, of how it connects to the environment, you have to actually learn regenerative agriculture. You're going to need to connect it to now the tech world because that's uh, the, the future. Um, you need to connect it to policy because we need to have appropriate policy to actually uh, somewhat regulate and police, you know, what sectors mm -hmm. do, etc. And then you also need to get back into the education of what are you teaching these fashion students before they even get into the workplace to then, you know, design properly because uh, the, the damage to our environment is actually 80% of it is at design stage. So just you taking that, that pencil to paper is already mm -hmm. you creating on that piece of paper the consequences of what that, you know, that creation is. Uh, meant to be in in this world. Um, so we need this intersector and cross-sector dialogue and then we need a cross-disciplinary dialogue. So what we're seeing a lot in the work that I do is um, people are actually m uh, mixing disciplines that wouldn't traditionally, you know, not even gel, but they, they should do, but we've never viewed them as you could be multiple things. So Children specifically are going to need to have an ability to connect things, pieces where answers and solutions may lie in other disciplines. So again, taking it back to the save and fashion example, we've got something like biodesign emerging, which is design and biology combined together. So you're actually combining design and art and fashion combined with science. And because there's a lot of answers in science as to you know, new material science, um, uh, material uh, uh, textiles that we can produce, etc. So we're actually receiving completely the wrong education when we're not um, uh, finding a way to amalgamate how you use these um, you know, um, uh, aspects collectively and that solutions cannot lie in just mm -hmm. one subject or in one sector. And so that's how I try and teach my, my children uh, from a perspective is just go to school, learn whatever they're going to teach you. But when we have discussions at home, what I try to explain to them is how you connect those dots of one, just the world around you, that you are not just in a silo here in London, you are absolutely, your survival is connected to every action elsewhere in this world. From your own um, 
personal background. I mean, you trained as a ballerina, you became a politician, and now change maker in uh, climate change. Um, how do you view these kind of different jobs uh, coming together? I see them. They all come together. To, from I think to people from the outside, they're just like how. How could you be trained in so many different things? I think one thing I have to say is that I've been thrown around by life, so I've really suffered for the kind of the the price of motherhood. So I was actually pushed out of politics when I had my son. I lost a lot of my posts, and I was actually uh, removed from running for elections. So, so sometimes when I've shifted, it hasn't been out of choice. So I've actually found myself having to retrain to learn new things because.、Um, Of these biases and these issues、mm-hmm. we have in our world, where I have suffered the the woman costs, the the you know, person of color costs, and whatever it is, so I left ballet not of my own will. There was one black ballet company, and there were no opportunities beyond that. So I danced for that company for four years. There was nothing more for me to do. I had to、mm-hmm. leave, and so and I was aware of that. So I got a university education at the same time because I did train as an artist and I had this traditional education. What I understood really early on is that、um, kids are missing actually a huge chunk of their education. When they're not having this design and arts training, because that gives you this view on this world that you can literally do anything and realize absolutely、mm-hmm. anything. And whereas in the way that we're taught in the UK,、uh, art and creativity or anything that's、uh, design orientated are periphery subjects that are nice to have, or people end up doing them outside of school. This is the the point. People stop learning.、Um, How is it that you were taught something, and then at the age of twenty-one, you were taught that that was going to be your profession, and that's the only thing that you're going to do? That is very dangerous because life really throws you around, and you have to be ready to actually deal with the context, not just of personal、uh, issues in life, but also that the world is changing、mm-hmm. around you. Whereas again, it's so static. You just finish that education, and that's your one profession, and that's it. How how that to me is just I cannot even understand、mm-hmm. that concept. I don't like that word specializing. You need to be a master at what you do, for sure. I'm not saying that you become a jack of all trades and a master of none. You definitely need to know every detail of what you're going to get into. But、um, this kind of being a specialist in any one thing concerns me very deeply.、Mm-hmm. Xenia, you, I mean, your work is so diverse. It's like kaleidoscope of incredible projects, like all around the world, and anything from、um, territory of childhood to、uh, you know artist labor. I mean, where do you get your ideas from? This has a lot to do with、uh, the value of lived experience. We have to understand that this is a massive resource. For for human beings, our lived experience and our、um, again the 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 sort of cultural landscape in which we grow up, which is、uh, formed to a large extent by our families or by like the surroundings, the the country, the culture, the cooking, everything, the smells,、um, and they the the way that we. We are raised, and we raise our children. Allow them to empathise and kind of plug in, in instinctually plug into these、uh, scenarios、um, in very interesting ways. And actually, I believe that、um, thinking less and relying on your inner voice、um, is how you generate interdisciplinary、mm-hmm. ideas.、Um, And for example, I've started being kind of interested 
in uh, collective artworks as a way of um, doing carbon sequestration recently. And I just had this idea. I was like, what the hell is wrong with you? Where did you get that idea from? And like, to me personally, it's obvious where I got that idea from because collective collectivity comes from like my Soviet upbringing and like collective artwork is, comes from the fact that I lived in an artist commune and carbon sequestration comes from um, my uh, professional work in uh, the fields of uh, like the future of, of old natural resources and how we're going to reevaluate that and like new wealth economies and but I didn't get there by um, analyzing all the various elements and putting them together. I got them. I got there by being artistic, by being a creative person, and, and that's why I completely agree with uh, with Flo in that. I think the way you can future proof your, uh, you know, yourself, your 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 loved ones, your children, um, is by uh, not denying them a creative education. And by making necessary uh, the the kind of no, I, I don't like to actually use the word education, but just by by allowing them to develop in the arts, um, because that is what we cannot automate, and that uh, will enable them to become systems thinkers and kind of designers of their future world. That's mm. what we're going to need. I love the the concept of. Um, uh kind of designers of the future world. How do you create that space for artistic and design thinking? Like my daughter, who's four, she's um, she's showing a talent for art immediately. And with my son, it was a kind of like, you know, pulling him, dragging him to, to sort of, you know, arts classes, and he just never wanted to be there. So he certainly is not exemplifying uh, arts in the same way, but it doesn't mean you can't be creative and you can't expose them to the same thing. So I still take both of them to, you know, uh, art galleries and I also show them the, the art of nature. So there's the, the physical art that, because we're always trying to interpret nature in art, uh, I think, and we're trying to interpret our world, not just nature, but just our world, be it people, constructed things, and the, the natural mm -hmm. element of it. We're, that's all we're ever trying to do, I think, in our whole lives. We're trying to replicate, even in AI, we're trying to replicate what the human brain does and is capable of improving it. So the inspiration is always the, the world. So uh, my son, he's much more in tune with nature and he's much more calmer and much more, you know, observing. And I, I don't know where his creativity is going to, to mm -hmm. lead, but he just needs to have that inner voice. That's, that's all that artists actually are. I think when you get to the core of it, and I think that's allowed me to do the things that I've done in my life and to have an imagination and I want my kids to have the same imagination is knowing your inner voice. Artists are just people who know their mm -hmm. inner voice and then they will become designers mm -hmm. or sculptors or this or that and they execute this kind of, you know, physical manifestation of it. I'm, uh, I spend a lot of time actually not clipping their wings because we do that a lot with children. We clip children's wings very early on. It'll be like, oh, don't do that. It's better to focus on this or that's nice, but that's not, you know, something that we could pursue seriously still you know focus on something else we're clipping wings very early mm -hmm. on whereas i it's not that i allow my children to do whatever they they please there still needs to be a certain level of discipline and sticking to to something mm -hmm. and uh, understanding you know 
how to uh, communicate properly and to manage your emotions and that sort of thing. But I really do not clip their wings. I allow them to explore to like the maximum what it is that they're searching for in their little inner beings. And then when I notice something, sometimes I don't notice it and I give them what I think is right for them. But when I see signs of certain things that my children are interested in, my, my son is interested in the ocean. So for him, his creativity is, is, is ocean life. And that is like, you know, for him, it just blows his mind that there's this whole world that we don't know uh, under the sea. Yeah, I think that's very important. Um, and I think just like with anything, like we worked very hard on uh, the way we position ourselves in our professions and our practices, we blah, blah, blah. But we often don't apply uh, kind of the same sensitivities to to the child. I am certainly um, guilty of that. And so equally, as we would with other adults, we should hold our assumptions lightly when approaching um, our children and young people in general. And often, if you ask them, they will tell you what their interests are and what will be constructive and developmental for them. But it's just that we find it so difficult to listen. <laughs> and yes, um, the answer is to give them the space and time for exploration. And it can be a really long time and it can be really trying. <laughs> and you, you will be the first to get bored, but they're not bored. And you should just, I think, try and be um, try and allow them that time and space to explore fully their interests. Yeah. I love that. I wanted to ask about the imposter syndrome. Um, it, it's being called as the 21st century <laughs> syndrome. Um, how do you avoid self-doubt in what you do? Because change-making assumes new territory constantly. How do you um, move forward? Wow, that's a really hard question. Um, wow. Uh, and the things are, I practice this every single day. Um, you just got to be really brave and courageous. And I think know your right to, to being a human being on this earth who has something to give. What is the point of being here if you don't have something to offer? So I find it really um, disturbing when I see you know, a culture in which people are constantly taught to know their place, to know their position, to to not speak up about things. And that's a culture that's you know, fostered very early on, as you say, in, in, in schools. But we're very fearful of actually um, just speaking and speaking our mind that and with thoughts that have come from years of training and from instinct and lived experience and many things. But we're we're taught that it's not the right thing to do. Um, and so what gives me courage to do this? Um, having come from nothing um, and having what I view as everything now, and we never have nothing because the world around us is so beautiful, but I have nothing to lose because I've already seen the worst things in life, be it you know, poverty or the people telling you you should know your, your place or you're not suited for something and that you know, you're not worthy. So what happens in, in this activity of being courageous and brave all the time, you do need to, to nurture and feed um, 
your soul, not just your body, because we understand how to look after a body, that we need to feed our body. But you also need to feed your mind and your soul and whatever it is, your inner being and your inner voice with some inspiration. So I'm very intentional about regular visits to to just sit and stare at art, to see a new exhibition that's in town, to, to be at the ballet, to go to theatre, to go into nature, um, I replenish myself very often because you do become depleted by all of the arrows that are constantly flying in your direction. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Ksenia, what about you? Yeah, great answer. Um, I just have one thing to add. I think we should encourage mentorship um, and exchange between more experienced people and like people with who are usually younger people with less experience or or just less experience in that field because nothing um feels better or like you you get such a sense of um accomplishment and flat you feel flattered when somebody asks you for help mm-hmm. when somebody asks you for your support and to share your knowledge and experience with them. And it feels really good. It feels like you actually have that knowledge and experience. And it's interesting because uh, I don't think we do it enough. And I think we should also do it. Um, We should always just ask for help and be more um, open with that and more humble, actually. And I think, I found that people are very, uh, very open and very supportive when you ask for their help. Uh, how would you apply it to smaller kids? I mean, I, I love that concept of mentorship. I'm just thinking that in the context of what we were saying, um, that kids are in school and they kind of sometimes just have one teacher who's just, you know, that's one point yeah. of reference. Well, I think it's obvious. I think just uh, break down um, generational barriers and get young children speaking to really old people mm-hmm. and it's a two-way exchange mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting um girls i i love your thoughts i think it's a brilliant conversation i i know that you have so so much more to say um is there like final thoughts from both of you just um on the subject of um future professions or change making that you would like to make just to close up so I think you know, it's it's very difficult to to answer what those future professions uh, look like. What I focus more on uh, so than the profession for my children is I'm focusing on how they would survive life as in emotionally, and exactly as you say, how how do you 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 know have the ability to to show up every single day. So I'm more concerned about their emotional elasticity to deal with the world that they're entering in and the profession they're going to become because that will unfold and even I might not be able to predict that. Um, But what I need them to be able to do is to survive and to be able to have an emotional range and uh, an eloquence um, and understanding how to deal with their emotions and with hardship and with good things and, and everything in between. So I really try and focus on that emotional elasticity of when things go wrong, how can you sit with your pain and get through it to get to the other side because we have this very um i think dangerous culture at the moment where we're plugging pain with we hand out pills to teenagers and we um uh we're told you know that we yeah, we're talking about mental health more as in it's okay to feel sad but we always just talk about depression i find that really strange because 
being sad is actually a very normal thing uh, versus having depression. So we only have two two words for things in this world now, being happy or being depressed. And I think that's, and that's being taught to our children. I think that's dangerous. And that's why we focus on a lot of literature and books and things like that, that explain to them the range of emotions that there are in between happy and being depressed and, and what you do and how you deal with those emotions and how you process them to be able to move forward because I mm -hmm. don't like this culture that is teaching us to be happy happy all the time um, but I also I'm a little bit concerned that we just overly talk about depression too so I'm trying to explain to my children that everything mm -hmm. that exists in between and that's where I refer to this emotional elasticity and that we shouldn't override pain we should actually deal with pain and to be able to move forward and, and every other range of emotion that we could experience in our life so that that's my focus for children of what will allow them to navigate life versus what that life is going to be. I think it's important to uh, teach children to balance their, uh, their social responsibilities with the understanding of their free will. And, that, and to show them by example, through practice preferably, how you can practice your freedoms um, and your free will um, because that's ultimately uh, the human condition um, for me and I think what's really really closely tied into this uh, which has come to the fore as a result of this crisis um, is vulnerability and how um, we are all vulnerable uh, I mean, we used to think that, you know, uh, people who are old and sick and young and in prison or refugees, uh, you know, there are all sorts of vulnerable communities. And we suddenly all felt vulnerable. And I suppose some people opened themselves up to that feeling and started to own it because vulnerability is a creative resource. Vulnerability is a driver for change. Mm -hmm. and vulnerability is a vehicle for learning and it's a heightened perception mm -hmm. that's why and I suppose mm -hmm. for me if you practice if you try and practice your your kind of free will you become vulnerable you make yourself vulnerable in society often and that can be very very hard I um I love that thought so I'd like to close on that mm -hmm.